Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 25th of January, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, uh, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands and Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent. correspondent. And uh, we're also delighted to have a guest today. Okay, we're going to get straight on here with uh, excess mortality. And uh, well, the, the numbers continue to build. Um, so if we look at the right hand side of this, uh, quite staggering. So 17,381 deaths registered in England and Wales in seven days to January the 13th. That's the highest number of excess deaths uh, since uh, February 2021. Uh, and certainly the highest sort of what they describe as non-pandemic uh, related deaths for decades. So it's just ridiculous that this is uh, really getting no particular uh, coverage um, in any real sense anyway. But don't worry, uh, here's uh, Maria Caulfield, uh, the health minister, that's what she had to say. Uh, well, I prefer to deal with the facts. The BMJ has ranked the UK mid-table in Europe for mortality figures compared with Italy. Comparable with Italy, sorry, she said, in fact, Germany has got higher excess deaths at 15.6%, Finland at 25%, 20.5%, and Poland at 13.3%. And this was a bit that really grabbed me. Uh, there are clinical reasons for excess deaths, not political ones. And perhaps he needs to recognize that fact. Uh, it was, she was uh, talking on the floor of the House of Commons, of course. Uh, and well, Debbie, maybe I could just ask your opinion here because that's quite a, a staggering one. I would have said that the reason for excess mortality is absolutely political. <laughs> Completely political. I mean, Maria Caulfield, of all people, because um, she's actually a trained nurse and she's been involved with the Cumberledge Review and MHRA. So I would suggest I would really like to talk to her. I've asked her for an interview, actually. But again, that's another person that won't speak to me. Uh, perhaps when I do speak to her or she agrees to speak to me, I can ask her those questions. Uh, well, if yes, indeed. Well, let's bring Dr. Adrian Boyle on screen then from the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. Uh, and he was talking about he was speaking to the uh, Commons Health and Social Care Committee yesterday. He's saying we've certainly had the worst ever December we've had. That's his words. If you look at performance figures in every metric, uh, what went on in December was terrible. He said we've got serious structural problems that impair our ability to deliver urgent and emergency care. So again, if he's claiming that these are structural problems that are causing the emergency crisis, the emergency care crisis, that's also political, Debbie. Uh, it, the whole situation is political and I can tell you for why it's political as we go on during the news because it dovetails quite nicely in with, it, with, with the segment that I'm about to do. So this is purely political, of course. Yes. OK, well, let's move on to this then. Uh, MHRA issued a press release this morning uh, talking about point of care medicine. Uh, and this is what they had to say. The UK will be the first country uh, in the world to introduce a tailored framework for the regulation of innovative project products manufactured at the point where a patient receives care. Read that again, manufactured at the point where a patient receives care. Uh, this will mean that new medicines with very short shelf lives and highly personalized medicines can more easily be made in or near a hospital setting or ambulance uh, and can get to the patients who need them much more quickly. Uh, the new framework will ensure there's no regulatory bar barriers to innovative manufacturing and that products made via such routes have the same assurances of safety, quality and effectiveness 
as those for conventional medicine products. Well, since conventional medicinal products don't seem to have uh, much safety quality or effectiveness, or at least it's pretty lax, uh, that's not much of an assurance. But anyway, they go on. Uh, in order to implement this framework, new legislation is being developed to amend the UK human medicines and clinical trials legislation, and we've brought to Parliament later this year. Uh, so here is Ian Rees from the MHRA, and he said, as a regulator that champions innovation, uh, we are delighted that our stakeholders are overwhelmingly supportive of introducing a fit-for-purpose UK legislative framework for point-of-care manufacturing. I'd like to know who the stakeholders are in this case. Is it the public? I don't think so. Uh, when implemented, these changes will drive tangible benefits for patients with visible differences at the pr uh, product innovation stage right up to the point of care, which will allow easier access to a greater and more personalized range of treatments for those in need. Now, I didn't know uh, what this was all about, so I decided to have a look and I came across this uh, article from Future Medicine uh, and it's called Institutional and Infrastructure Challenges for Hospitals Producing Advanced Therapies in the UK, the concept of point in care manufacturing readiness. Uh, and this is what they had to say uh, in their plain language summary. Point of care manufacture is the production of therapies in hospitals carried out when there is no time for storing the medicine, uh, which is delivered to the patient with no delays. Such procedures can be useful for advanced therapies derived from techniques such as gene editing, uh, cell manipulation and tissue engineering. Uh, over the last decades, UK hospitals have produced advanced therapies in small quantities. In the future, this production will likely be more thoroughly integrated into cl clinical routines. Um, so we're talking about gene editing, cell manipulation and tissue engineering, Debbie. And this is uh, all very uh, futuristic kind of stuff. It's not, it's not the kind of stuff which is routine by any means at this stage, but already we're regulating for this as if it's routine. Yeah, exactly. And point of care, does that mean, you know, we go into a hospital and the drugs manufactured by the side of us? I mean, that puts manufacturing and distribution into a whole new light. And and that is, I'm absolutely delighted to be able to welcome our special guests today uh, because there's nobody better to talk about this than Hedley Reese. Um, and many of our audience may know Hedley from our Man to Molecule interview. And we have recently done another interview with Hedley. Headley's um, a world expert in pharmaceutical manufacturing and distribution, and he's got 12 years of evidence on his substack Inside Pharma. But you just mentioned, Mike, there, Ian Rees and the MHRA press release, and it just so happens that Headley has had an interview um, with the MHRA, with Ian Rees, in the last few hours, last few days. So I'm delighted to be able to welcome Headley to UK Column News to tell us all about his meeting with Ian and what you make of this recent news, Headley, from your perspective. Headley, welcome. Hi, Debbie. Nice to speak to you again. Yes, I had a call with Ian Rees and David, I can't remember his second name, um, yesterday on a freedom of information request that I sent in on the 14th of November, where I noticed that MHRA had changed the regulation for manufacture and distribution of medicinal products just for advanced therapies, what they call advanced therapy medicinal products. So I thought, well, that can't be right because it was allowing uh, hospital pharmacies and other similar facilities 
to finish off the manufacture of these uh, therapies. Now, any medicinal product goes into the human body next once it's manufactured. And um, there are strict regulations, good manufacturing practice and good distribution practice that ensures that when the patient gets the product, it's safe. And when the company gets a license to market a product, a marketing uh, authorization, they have to submit all the details of the supply chain from the raw materials right the way through to finished product going into the patient. And that has to be approved by the regulator, which in this case would be MHRA, before uh, they get a license. So I asked Ian Rees, how is he going to be able to assess the supply chain that goes into the hospital, what they call the, um, the, the the distribution supply chain from the finished product manufacturer who's made similar to the COVID vaccines, made these vials at minus 70 degrees C, packed up in 195 uh, vials, five doses to a vial. How is, he, how is a hospital pharmacy going to affect a, accept a gene therapy like that they have to carry out what they call bona fides on the supplier to make sure the whole supply chain is bona fides. They have to have a, a, um, a license to be able to um, import the products or bring the products in. They have to have experience in inventory control. You know, all the things you'd expect to have in manufacture. And I was told this is all going to be the responsibility of the Care Quality Commission. So at the end of the call, um, we agreed two points. Uh, one, Ian Reese sent me the link that took uh, these advanced therapies out of the safety net of the falsified medicines directive of 2011, which is absolutely there because people have died in the supply chain because falsified and adulterated medicines have actually got into, into patients. Heparin is a good example in 2007, 2008, where patients died and had serious adverse uh, events they decided that it wouldn't apply to these advanced therapies. I don't know, how can you do that? How can you have, it's a it's an EU directive, and there's a committee for advanced therapies, which to me appears to be self-elected, which seems to be deciding all these things. And they're not a regulator as such, so I left that completely baffled. The other thing Ian Rich is going to do is going to tell me because he said the responsibility for the hospital would be on the company that manufactures the products. So they will have to ensure that they put in place all the facilities and the procedures in the hospital pharmacy, and they will have to include that in the license application when they apply to market the drug. And I don't think he, they'd be able to do that. I don't think they will, because this is a harmonized global procedure uh, it's been harmonized through the International Conference of Harmonization of, of Technical Requirements for Pharmaceutical Products, an organization in Spain, which has worked very hard over the last 10, 15 years to do this harmonization. So how can the UK suddenly do this on its own? I just, you know, it's left me puzzled. So that's where we are with that. Hedley, yeah. thank you. I don't know, gentlemen, if you've got um, any comments that you want to ask Hedley. Otherwise, I've only just got one one quick question. Uh, well, just one, uh, just one, if I if I may, um, Hedley. Uh, I've been away in Scotland for a, a few days, so some areas of uh, the news. I'm a little bit behind the curve at the moment, but I was 
I was hearing rumours that the MHRA was sort of starting to backpedal and say, well, no, we don't have ultimate responsibility for safety. Somebody else does. Um, have you have you heard anything along those lines? It's almost as if now the spotlight has really come on the MHRA. People are asking them the right questions about what they are actually doing to protect uh, patients from dangers of uh, particularly uh, trial pharmaceutical 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 products. Um, the MHRA is trying to step back, push the blame onto others. Have you heard anything about this at all? Um, I mean, anecdotally, and I'm just looking at it, they do appear to be. The thing is, it's become very hazy of, of what a competent authority is for the licensing, approval and inspection of, of drugs. But clearly, the UK competent authority is the MHRA. So when they license a drug, they have to make sure the, 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 the clinical, the safety, the non-clinical data and all what they call the chemistry manufacturing and controls data, which is the end-to-end -end supply chain, they have to evaluate that and ensure it's safe. And no one else can have that responsibility because they have the inspectors to do it. So this comment about the Care Quality Commission, that's why I asked the question about the licensing, because you know, A, they, they won't have the skills and experience to, 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 to inspect uh, hospital pharmacies working on advanced therapies. Um, but, but aside from that, well, I just don't know why they are involved. But I, I would also say that this point of care manufacturing appears to be part of the whole plan of going wall-to-wall -wall mRNA injections. Mm. It seems very much to me because um, these, um, this point of care applies to cell and gene therapies. We've got a cell and gene therapy catapult in the UK which with a role to the part of Innovate UK, their role is to really push gene therapies and cell therapies as far in the UK as they can so that UK becomes number one in the world. And, you know, I note that I was, um, I was asked by the Office for Life Sciences to, um, to help on a, a, a government advanced manufacturing supply chain initiative grant with a company called Oxford Biomedica. And they actually supply now, when I worked with them, they were developing the viral vector for Kimria, which is a Novartis gene therapy for blood cancers, CAR T therapy. And it's about 470,000 uh, pounds a dollars a, a treatment. So it's not cheap. But subsequently, Oxford Biomedica have made the AstraZeneca Stroke Ox Oxford University, um, they developed and manufactured the adenovirus vector. Not many people, well, it's quite, I mean, Boris Johnson has visited the plant. Um, Danny Alexander visited there when he was um, when, when he was in the coalition government. But people don't seem to realize that neither Oxford, uh, AstraZeneca nor Oxford University did a jot in developing these vaccines, or I should call them injections. It was Oxford Biomedica. With Moderna, it's a company called Lonza, which is again the biggest uh, contract manufacturer in the world, and uh, they are part of this. Uh, and there are press releases by Lonza that confirm that. So all these injections have not been manufactured or developed by the company selling them. They've been manufactured under contract 
and the, the companies selling them have full responsibility for that whole supply chain, the entire supply chain. So um, it's really hard to, I, I just can't believe what's happening having, you know, I joined the industry in 1980 and in those days, everything was joined up. You know, the big pharma companies owned all the facilities, they employed the people. Nowadays, big pharma have just outsourced all the physical activities of, of drug development and manufacture, and they just aren't in a position to develop drugs. And that's why I think that's why this has happened, because they just aren't bringing new products to market. And gene therapies is the last, is the last uh, great white hope for big pharma even if they actually have to contravene all the regulations and collaborate with fraud and that whole thing, you know, better that than than dissatisfy investors because they're not bringing new products to market. Yeah, and right. you know, I can say that. Headley, thank you so much. Um, I've got more questions for you, but we'll address those in extra. But I'll throw back to the studio. But thank you, Headley, so much for that information. Super, thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, yeah, uh, Debbie. Alex, over to you then. Uh, we can't hear you. are muted. Hold on. There you go. Shall we try now? Yes, yes this is a very good sequela to uh, what we've just heard from Hedley Reese, uh, because somebody who at least publishes as Nick Denim, a retired senior civil servant uh, from a Whitehall government department, has had this uh, freedom of information request back from the MHRA on the 11th of this month. And I don't know whether Nick Denim is a publishing pseudonym because in the actual reply he supplied, the name is blanked out. Uh, but here they're replying to questions which they place in blue italic text. And it's particularly about this question of what a licensing authority has to do, uh, which Nick Denim, among other informed people, has been asking about. So this is a multi-pronged FOI. Nobody can say that it's coming just from Headley Reese or just from the UK column. So the question was, the human medicines regulations, this of course is secondary legislation, define the licensing authority as, and this is quite common in my experience, speaking as Alex, the Secretary of State, in this case, uh, the Health Secretary. And that, everyone who's a civil servant acts under that authority, under that tree, as it were. So the, the buck stops with the Secretary of State. Please, can you send me the MHRA document? Because, of course, the MHRA is a spin-off agency, uh, arm's length agency, too removed from the Secretary of State. Can you send me your document describing the flow of delegation from the Secretary of State to postal people in the MHRA who can authorise medicines for public use? The MHRA response is all the COVID vaccines and therapeutics authorization decisions were taken by the licensing minister, that's the Secretary of State, and were not delegated. The MHRA does not hold a document describing the flow of delegation from the Secretary of State to anyone in the MHRA who can authorize medicines for public use. The next question was, uh, you're allowed to uh, make temporary authorizations for medicines. We heard about this from Headley just a moment ago. Uh, What's your instruction on that regard? <clears throat> they did apply, they did attach copies of letters that the Department for Health and Social Care sent to the agency uh, regarding that, that regulation 174 uh, authorization to give temporary authorization. Please note that these do not denote instructions to authorize, but it's a case by case basis. Next question, who at your agency, the MHRA, signed the temporary authorizations for public use of the COVID vaccines? Reply, the minister, the Secretary of State again. Next question, 
send me copies of your one-year reviews of the temporary authorization. So that would be around, uh, well, I don't know whether we're counting from the uh, the rollout at, at New Year 2021, just about, or, or from the time of authorization during 2020. But after a year, MHRA was supposed to have said, well, how is this performing? They reply at the MHRA, we understand that you're referring to the following. And here's the new regulation, which uh, I won't read all the text of, but it's that they are to do a review as soon as is reasonably practical after the end of one year uh, uh, of or temporary authorization. They have to evaluate whether there have been adverse consequences for the market in medicines named first or for patient safety named second. So here, even you see that the MHRA is there first and foremost for the pharmaceutical industry, as they often say themselves these days. And they are to conclude, the, the, make conclusions, review them and publish in the report. And they reply, well, here's the report. Here's a link to it. Uh, and the rest is standard blurb. Although I note in passing that uh, the information commissioner's offices to whom they refer is rather ironically lodged in a building in Cheshire called Wycliffe House. David Scott has, uh, in a speech which we transcribed on ukcolumn.org, noted that Wycliffe is famous not least for his uh, say, saying picked up later by Abraham Lincoln that government should be of the people, for the people, and by the people. Um, so if you want to see this written up, then here it is at the Daily Skeptic. And in a moment, I, will, I know we're short for time, so I'm sure Headley will be brief. But in a moment, I'm very keen to hear what Headley has to say in response to this. So the write-up of this by Nick Denim, and I will not read all this text, but I recommend people read this in full, says that having received this, I'm sure that the blame game has started. Why? Well, to summarise what's on screen here, they would have known all about scaling up production problems. This is the core of Headley's expertise, as I understand it. He's been sounding the alarm on this for years. For example, mixing larger quantities and evening them out from batch to batch. Uh, people know about this. We have a five-part Mike Eden transcript up on the website as well. Search for Yeadon and you'll find it very easily. Adverse uh, or the hot lots, I think we call the, the key part of it. Um, Nick Denham goes on to say, why are they passing the buck now? Well, they knew about the risk being very low in younger age groups that you would have serious adverse, uh, serious uh, consequences of COVID, i.e. hospitalization or death. We have something else uh, forthcoming in UK column about this from another writer. Uh, they would have known all this and they have been criticized by Baroness Cumberledge for being unresponsive and defensive, but they are not deaf, blind or stupid. They knew. And in, in, at the end of this report, Nick Denim, and I won't read this all in full, but he summarizes eight detailed reasons based on freedom of information inquiries results, just demonstrating the gold value of uh, keeping track of these and keep staying on the agency's tail, as in any other area that you're campaigning on. Uh, they didn't have safety audits. They didn't have processes for in investigating individual yellow card reports uh, to, in 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 to, to investigate adverse reaction reports. They can't define what a quantitative risk is. Um, they didn't hold data from the real world. Uh, they lost 20% of their posts during the first year of the COVID jab rollout due to funding cuts. They don't have processes for delegating authorities to approve medicines for public use. They have hidden safety data by redacting numbers in tables on the spurious pretext of patient confidentiality. And they appear quietly to have dropped targeted active monitoring, which was supposedly the crown jewels of their COVID vaccine surveillance. So in, in very brief terms, Headley, uh, is there any of this new to you? And uh, where does it take us, really? What's the next push in freedom of information requests? Uh, no, none, none of this is new. You'd expect it. If this was the aviation industry and, um, you know, uh, they, they had just ignored all the, the Civil Aviation Authority regulations, and, you know, and just done their own thing, then 
you know, all these questions, similar questions would have would, would have arisen. Um, you know, I, I keep saying medicines are manufactured, medicinal products are manufactured like any other product. We know it takes 10 years to bring a drug to market. And what we're seeing now is more and more people are waking up to the fact that, well, you know, how did you develop this in nine months and get at the full scale to all the safety testing in the supply chain? Every time you scale up, you have to redo the animal testing to make sure the molecule that's been produced is still safe. None of that could have gone on because they did what they call the rolling reveal, which they did phase one, two, and three all together. So they would have been scale ups going from one, two, and three, and then from the, the full large quantities and there will have been no testing carried out. So and I, I, I'm aware of Nick's work, and he's done some really good work there. And, you know, he comes from, you know, an industry, if, it, if someone in nuclear or, as I say, aviation, aerospace, they'd all understand the importance of quality management systems, everyone knowing who, who, who's doing what, who reports to whom, what they do when they find a fault or an error, and the thousand and one things that anyone working in industry in those, at, at least in those industry, would know, you know, you can't deal with this uh, uh, on, on the back of a fag packet, to use a colloquialism. And uh, for the sake of our American viewers, fag packet here means cigarette packet, uh, just in case we get any write-ins on that. But it's a very well-known uh, British idiom. In, in closing his piece, Nick Denim, uh, so it's interesting to hear that he's well known or his writing is well known to Hedley Rees, says this is something for members of parliament and the COVID inquiry to ask. Uh, incidentally, the penultimate session of the European Parliament's COVID inquiry special committee uh, has just been held or is about to be held next week is going to be held. Uh, and meanwhile, the European Court of Accounts, I'll put the link in the show notes courtesy of Kenny, has concluded that in EU level, the COVID certificate was effective, but the Track and Trace app, absolutely not, because it was poorly implemented by national authorities. Um, so that's uh, one to keep an eye on. We go on to other health matters, which of course is Debbie's purview, but she's with us today. So I will bring on screen this uh, report from uh, an email uh, that has reached us uh, from... Uh, Pardon. Yeah, this is first of all this, uh, which is Debbie would be very keen uh, for people to fill this in in the final week uh, of uh, of its operation. It's an MHRA survey. Uh, it's a complicated URL, and you have to put HTTPS on it. So uh, wait a few hours and follow it from the show notes. Just a few days left for the MHRA to receive your reply on how well you think they communicate with health health care pro professionals to improve medicines and. Uh, uh, medical devices safety. I'm sure you'll have plenty to say uh, about that. Now, uh, an email from a viewer, sorry for the uh, mistake in the sequence here, and I haven't uh, corrected the typos in there, but it's a heartfelt email from a UK column source who has uh, been very uh, informative to us in the past from the northeast of Scotland. Uh, the first paragraph is about another friend, uh, peripheral to the main story, dying in sheltered housing and it believes it's from neglect. And, and I'm sorry to say that this is uh, something we hear in the thousands now. But the main concern from this viewer this time is that uh, the friend uh, of this UK column viewer started going blind in her right eye and went to Aberdeen Hospital. She informed me I am vaccinated. They put her on an oxygen machine for what I believe to be the period of one week. She got sick uh, in the week before Christmas and just came back to work yesterday in January, stating her legs were like jelly. 
She can no longer watch television because of her eye problems. And I think with the hospital putting her on oxygen that they did in fact try to kill her, similar to the ventilator scandal in America. Uh, here it gets worse. One employee told her during her hospitalization, if you hadn't got the vaccine, it would have been much worse. The viewer says, my jaw hit the ground. These people are either suffering from psychosis or are genuinely insane. I now feel that these hospitals are death centers. These are opinions. We broadcast them as such. Interesting nugget at the end here. After seeing Debit's piece regarding hospital euthanasia, I feel there is something you missed out. I believe there is a remedy to this because of UK trade union law and the coercion of the public. Gareth Icke, that's David Icke's son, of course, interviewed a woman who was well, well versed in this law. One of her clients was ordered to take a PCR test. She refused and then presented this hospital with a legal letter stating in writing that coercion by medical staff carries a prison sentence of six months. The staff in this hospital never bothered the person again. Uh, final piece from me in this segment before we go on to Debbie for the real core of, of health presentation. Uh, but this is uh, European, so it's really within my purview. I've been saying for some while that Portugal is a particularly hopeful and constitution respecting country in EU terms. We see yet more evidence of it. So a viewer who is a dentist and a, and a, um, a signatory, of the, or in fact, a starter of the petition in question, please don't be cynical about petition. I know some of our audience are, but we show this in order to, 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 to disabuse you of that notion. Petitions can be very important. Uh, is this. In July 2021, a Portuguese petition was created against the COVID vaccination of children and young people. It gathered more than 9,000 signatures. Of course, in the UK, you need 100,000 to get a, a parliamentary debate. Uh, but Portugal's rather more democratic. I know it has a much smaller population. But with 9,000 signatures, that was enough in August last year to have it submitted to Parliament. On the 15th of June 2022, the petition author, a cardiologist and I, a dentist, were heard by the Health Commission. I don't think you'll get this kind of promptness in Britain. After almost a year and a half, says the writer, the petition will finally be discussed in Parliament by the political parties and voted on on the 3rd of February. A lot's happened in the meantime, and we have a lot more information now. I write, I hope that viewers take note from other countries about this, I write because I want to make some noise with this vote in Parliament in Lisbon so that it does not pass unnoticed. Sometimes, he writes, just by making noise abroad, uh, we can achieve something domestically. And who knows, if the petition is approved in Portugal, and my assessment, Alex speaking, is that Portugal is probably the best hope in the EU, then it could be an example for other countries. EU countries tend to notice only what other EU countries do. Uh, so I'll just show on screen very briefly for those who speak Portuguese or live in Portugal, uh, in the Participação or Have Your Say part of the parliamentary website in Portugal. Uh, this is the site to go to. It will be in the show notes again. It's Initiative 2232. It has already reached the stage of debate and vote. Okay, very good. Alex, thank you very much for that. Uh, now we're going to head over to Ukraine, in fact. Uh, yes, we're going to move across to uh, have a look at what's been happening with Ukraine. And of course, the major subject at the moment is tanks, but we will be coming back to medical matters. So uh, we're just, this caught my attention this morning. Of course, the BBC for quite a long time has pushed the war in Ukraine to third. If you have a look at the red bar of the BBC website, you can see that home news comes first, then cost of living. And of course, people dying in huge numbers in Ukraine, that was pushed down to number three. But all of a sudden, um, we've now got uh, US and Germany to send tanks to Ukraine, and that's come uh, right up on the first page that you come to. And uh, uh, a few uh, 
well, a couple of hours before we've come live with the news, the uh, headline was updated to this live German Chancellor poised to confirm tanks for Ukraine. There is no doubt the BBC regards this as a wonderful war and um, they're very keen to uh, get it on the front page when, of course, it's it's uh, about more weapons from the West into Ukraine. They're yes. so keen on talking about the poor Ukrainians who are going to die as a result. Um, so we get the opportunity to put this graphic back on screen one more time. The saga does continue. Hopefully this will be the last time. But anyway, uh, the BBC, when Brian took the screenshot, uh, Olaf Schultz hadn't quite made the statement yet. He has made it now. So let's have a look and see what he said. Uh, the goal is to quickly assemble two tank battalions with Leopard 2 tanks for Ukraine. In a first step, Germany will provide a company with 14 Leopard 2 A6 tanks from stocks of the Bundeswehr. Uh, do you think it's a coincidence that he's providing 14? No, I, th I think this is a very, very strong political statement that the Germans don't really want to do this. I believe there's a huge backlash at, actually under the surface in Germany because it was Nazi German tank armies that, that uh, killed millions, millions of people uh, in the Soviet Union. And I think there are many German people who do not want to do this. So parity with the UK numbers mm. was sort of the minimum they could get away with. And I think this is, this is a statement that they are not going to escalate it with more than 14 tanks. Right. So let's move on with what he said. Other European partners will hand over Leopard 2 tanks. The training of the Ukrainian crews should begin quickly in Germany. In addition to training, the package will also include logistics, ammunition, and maintenance of the systems. Now, Patrick was talking about this on Friday's programme, Brian, uh, about the fact that, of course, there's no possibility of training Ukrainians to maintain these uh, these tanks, either the British or the German tanks. Therefore, the, we're going to have to send British personnel and the uh, Germans or the Polish are going to have to send German yeah. Polish personnel to maintain these tanks. That's NATO boots on the ground in yeah, Ukraine. Well, this is escalation. We are gradually... Uh, slowly but surely, we are being drawn into direct confrontation with the Russians. And this is what I think many people uh, don't understand. Uh, a lot of the surveillance being done by NATO is being done remotely. But if you want to support these type of vehicles and have them fighting on the front lines, then you've got to have the fully qualified maintenance and backup teams. And where are you going to put those? They've got to go into Ukraine. So this is NATO boots on the ground in Ukraine coming up. Uh, now, of course, as Brian said, lots of opposition to this in Germany, but not everywhere. Uh, here is Katrin uh, 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 Goering uh, Eckhart, uh, who is the uh, vice president of the Bundestag. Uh, the leopards freed, uh, and with an exclamation mark. Alex, very happy that the tanks are going. Oh, there are certainly Atlanticist people. Göring Eckhart of the Greens is a well-known example who are very keen on this. And at national level too, there are certain governments which are keen to be seen as hawks. Uh, I have a, a, a NATO source who tells me that Mr. Reznikov, the Ukrainian foreign minister, uh, came very smugly, grinning from ear to ear, out of a secret conclave held in the margins of the Ramstein meeting on Friday. That's the 50 defence ministers meeting in a Ukraine support conclave, as you've reported on a Friday. The Ramstein ministers uh, had a, a, a hiving off, and some of the ministers, I don't know whether the German defence minister was among them, but I'm pretty sure they would have been, went into conclave in a secret session, uh, and uh, Reznikov came out beaming and saying to... Uh, to guilt trip the other defence ministers, you can hear the leopards roaring in that room. 
So yes, there are some cheerleaders, and Göring Eckhart is particularly interesting because her party background is supposed to be peacenik. Uh, and yet, as we've reported at state level as well, with the coal digging in North Rhine-Westphalia, the Greens are now having to take decisions diametrically opposed to their manifesto commitments over the decades. Yes. Now, the United States so far hasn't made any formal uh, notification that they're going to be doing the same, but they're expected to send uh, 30 uh, tanks is what, what is expected from the US. Uh, but is it going to end with tanks? Uh, well, according to, uh, uh, to Colonel Yuri Inhat, uh, from spokesperson for the Ukrainian Air Force, absolutely not. Uh, he's talking about aircraft and the decisions at, uh, have already been made about which types of aircraft and how many aircraft and support and so on. And he's saying the type of aircraft that will likely be provided to Ukraine and the corresponding terms of personnel training have already been determined. So, Alex, my question is, what happens on the battlefront once uh, if, if the West does send Ukraine aircraft? Because to my knowledge, uh, Russia is not uh, waging any major aerial campaign at this point. They're obviously they're bombing with with and they're heavy shelling and so on, but not with not from aircraft. So if the if uh, NATO supplied aircraft start flying in Ukrainian skies, that's going to encourage Russia to or they're going to have to respond to that. This again is escalation. Definitely. And in my limited uh, experience of this from being a, a sideline viewer of the strategic air and tactical air efforts, which were joint uh, Royal Air Force, Army and Civilian at GCHQ and NSA, I, I was in awe of how seriously they took their job and also in awe of uh, just how committed the Russian, air, uh, the Russian uh, airmen are to their mission, uh, as was well acknowledged by the West. And so they're, they're not going to take this lightly. They have, I think even, even sort of enlightened uh, laymen know this, uh, spectacularly good air defence and radar coverage. They don't like their territory being infringed by uh, a foot. Uh, they're not going to leave it lying. Um, it has been a big debate, hasn't it, for the first year of this horrible war. Uh, why aren't the Russians responding uh, from the air? The, la the, the, the dominant reason given back, other than not wanting World War Three is that it's thought on behalf of the Russians that they don't want to display their um, airframes and the, the, the uh, capacities they have. But there, I think there will be many ground-based ways as well as air-based ways of responding to this escalation. And uh, this is probably a good moment to insert as well what the other thing is that a NATO source told me uh, from the last week, which is that the NATO Policy Planners Conference took place in Paris on the 17th and 18th of this month. Not much was said publicly about it. The press release will be in the show notes. Uh, it, Sweden and Finland were represented as uh, supposedly imminent members, although Sweden may now be left behind after a Koran burning incident outside an embassy, leaving Gotland very exposed in the Baltic. Uh, but they discussed the medium term policy channel challenges for Russia's war and the future of the transatlantic security order. They discussed internal instability and what they called threats to democracy arising from these international disorders. The source reports that there were chucklesome moments, such as when the defense ministers uh, and policy planners discussed uh, the um, uh, possible alternative futures of Russia, the sudden disappearance of Putin, and apparently some participants said, but what happens if there's a sudden disappearance of Zelensky? Why isn't that on the agenda? quite telling. And another thing they considered was a highly isolated and aggressive Russia scenario and a domestic instability and political chaos in Russia scenario, including nuclear risks. 
The one thing that they didn't seem to be discussing there was what you raised, which is the overwhelming force of Russian air operating in its own airspace and just beyond uh, to put paid to, I think, almost anything the West can put in the battlefield. Yes, um, thank, thank you for that, Alex. The other thing to add to the mix that you've described there is Russian electronic warfare, which is proving to be devastating uh, to, the, to the Western and Ukrainian forces on the battlefield, and much of their equipment still hasn't been brought into theatre. So a combination of Russian air defence missiles and air-launched air defence missiles, plus that electronic warfare, are the two things at the moment which are absolutely dominating the battle. But of course, um, if, we, if we go by the number of tanks that we're talking about, putting in a few more aircraft from the West aren't going to make any difference. They're going to be shot down uh, along with the other Ukrainian aircraft, the remaining small numbers which are still shot down on a regular basis, week by week, month by month. But uh, we are being slowly but surely pulled towards a direct conflict with Russia. And it seems, you know, it seems to me that the Biden administration now is just reinforcing its own failure. But here in UK, who have we got? Well, we've got very dangerous individuals like Boris Johnson. And I want to just come back to have a look at this trail of Boris moving from Davos um, straight into the Ukrainian theatre. Um, so some quotes here. This is him. Thank you, Victor Binchuk Foundation for hosting the Ukrainian breakfast at Davos. The session demonstrated the unity across nations that Ukraine must and will win. Well, let's remember that this isn't anything to do with nation states making the decision. This is globalists meeting for breakfast and deciding how overseas wars are going to be fought. Uh, he went on to say, we must ensure that Zelensky has the tools he needs to finish the job. This is the moment to double down. Now, in a way, this is utter nonsense because Ukraine at the moment is losing. There is no question of this. And so what we're going to be doing is reinforcing failure. That's going to drag the war out. And that is going to mean that tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands more Ukrainians are going to die because Russia is dominating on the battlefield. But uh, here's the sort of thing that Boris Johnson was tweeting out. So that's this is the source tweet for his statement that there's got to be unity across nations and Ukraine must and will win. And that's a very interesting statement because what is he talking about there? Well, I think it's that Ukraine must win because if Ukraine doesn't win, all of a sudden the balance of power with the so-called rules-based international order is going to be overturned by the Russians uh, with support of the Chinese in the background. But essentially, Boris Johnson is a puppet. Who was he acting for when he made these statements? But let's just bring the little video clip on screen of his uh, unexpected uh, latest meeting with Zelensky in Ukraine. Uh, is he there as a private uh, individual? Is he there as a, a member of parliament? Is he there as a covert representative of the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office? We simply don't know as, as he goes to meet his chum. I'm fascinated by the, yeah, I've used the phrase, the chumminess and the, the body language here. This is, this is a private meeting, my opinion, with a few buddy boys. Um, he's got a green tie on. Is that significant, do you think, Mike? I don't know. We'll see him shortly sitting down at a very posh desk. 
And where are the minutes of the meeting? When, are, when, are, when is the UK public going to be told exactly what was discussed? And probably more importantly, what Boris Johnson promised to Zelensky in the future? Because, of course, we can't fix the potholes in the road, but if it's arms for Ukraine, we can deliver as much as possible. So, uh, well, he goes up the steps, he goes into a very uh, posh room, and the uh, dialogue continues. But this is the key part of the article which calls, caught my attention. Boris Johnson signing an anti-tank weapon to show his support for the uh, Ukrainian regime. I, I regard this as being, uh, I'm short of words, vile, I think. And um, is this a private army operating here? Alex, just give me a bit of support because uh, this is just, it is disgraceful what we see happening here. This man is out of control. Nobody knows what he's doing. Nobody knows what he's agreeing. But the minimum of his actions is that the war in Ukraine is being prolonged and hundreds of thousands of more people are going to die as a result of Boris Johnson. Brian, it's not just you. There are respected people in the dissident commentariat who are couching it in very bold terms now that Mr Johnson would start World War III in order to cover the questions over his, what is it, four-fifths of a million loans from relatives and other questionable matters. Uh, but I think what's significant about Johnson's visit is that immediately afterwards, Mikhailo Podolyak was announced as the successor, as main advisor to President Zelensky, succeeding in post uh, Aristovich, uh, who you're about to mention. And Podolyak, who's another one of these frighteningly young men with a thousand yard gaze, yard gaze uh, has uh, announced in a, in, in a public video that as Russia escalates the war, the Ukrainians are going to be using long range artillery, which, by the way, they have now got from the UK, US, uh, France and Italy. They're going to be using that to target Russia's three largest uh, megacities, St. Petersburg, Russia, uh, Moscow and uh, Yekaterinburg or Chelyabinsk to the older viewers. And uh, that's that's now been spared loss, sorry, sorry. But that's now actually been made public policy that these three uh, cities are going to be targeted. And smug Mr. Podolyak said that the, these cities uh, live you know, in a bubble. They assume that they're above the fray and they, they are pampered, but they're going to have a rude awakening. Uh, so I wonder how much coordination there was between the Johnson faction and this newly appointed Mikhailo Podolyak, who is the, the next crazy to be appointed to be advising Zelensky. Yeah, well, of course, we don't know the answers, but your, your question is the pertinent question. UK public's got to be asking the question constantly of every minister in this country they can get hold of. Meanwhile, the mail here is gloating uh, over Moscow's fury uh, about the German and the US tank de uh, uh, deal and the details of that. Uh, but of course, it's no surprise that Russians are now starting to get very... Uh, uh, emotive about this because uh, the reality is in the background. They remember 8.6 million Russian military war dead, most of which uh, uh, the most of the death occurred on the Eastern Front. And of course, who were they fighting? Well, they were fighting Germans and they were fighting German tank armies. So the sneer from the Daily Mail is tr truly disgusting here. But of course, this is more mocking and uh, in my opinion, trying to inflame uh, Russia uh, and uh, presumably pr provoke an even greater Russian response. But uh, we just remind uh, audience that on the 18th of January, we were reporting 
about Arestovich, um, who'd made the uh, wrong statements as far as uh, Zelensky was concerned about a Russian missile strike. Uh, um, he, he, he came out and said, well, of course, it was Ukrainian air defense that deflected the missile and damaged the uh, housing development and caused the Ukrainian civilian casualties. He had to leave post. Um, but there are some other statements that, which are now being recorded on social media. Now, I can't, I can't say this statement is absolutely true. This is one of the statements circulating. Um, but I believe from the sources that I've seen, it's likely to be true. And it's a very interesting statement from Arrestostovich. If everyone thinks we are guaranteed to win the war, then it's very different. I think he means not guaranteed. But this sounds a very sensible statement. Could this be the reason that he was actually kicked out from the Zelensky team? And there's also been unconfirmed social media reports that he's actually crossed the front lines into Russian-held territory. Now, again, I can't prove this. I'm reporting it raw. There have been these statements. But if those statements are true, we are seeing some very, very interesting things happen within the uh, Zelensky administration. Um, what we can say is that, of course, he's been censored. Uh, to his Instagram page isn't operating properly anymore. So if you speak out in any way the truth or against the uh, Zelensky government's uh, war, you're going to disappear pretty quickly. Uh, meanwhile, what have we got? Well, we've got a lot more hard recruiting of uh, very young people uh, to get them into the Ukrainian military and up to the front line. This is some film clip that has come from Odessa and it's showing the way that these uh, recruiting people are operating. This is another clip here with men operating in a, uh, a shopping center of some description. And uh, you can see that they've got a relatively young man pinned against the shop front there as uh, obviously he's uh, uh, trying to be summoned into the Ukrainian military. But the reality of this is with minimal training, and it doesn't matter whether that minimal training is in Ukraine or Germany or UK, uh, the chances of these young people surviving at the front for more than a few days, um, that's the reality. They are going to die and uh, we are helping them die. This was posted over the last few days. And again, I'm giving it to our audience raw. Um, don't know whether you want to com comment on this one, Alex, but basically the social media channel said that uh, many of the summons that have been issued uh, recently in the Kiev area had no legal force. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but clearly what we are seeing is the start of a, a backlash against the uh, uh, recruiting that's uh, going on for ever younger people in Ukraine. Do, do you want to just comment on that one, uh, Alex, or not? Simply just to say in view of time that uh, when these screenshots circulate, uh, the documents always appear genuine to me. What you just showed on screen is no exception. Uh, the Ukrainian seems to be saying uh, to me what, what it is claimed as saying. It's usually Russian language sources that, uh, that then amplify it. And people shouldn't be skeptical simply because it's Russian or Russian language social media circulating these things. There is a lot of confusion as to who can do what. Even in peacetime in a country like Ukraine, you've got all kinds of layers and uh, uh, intersecting authorities competing against each other. OK, thank you very much for that. Well, let's just have a look at a very short clip about the reality of what the Ukrainian troops are facing. And that is overwhelmingly shelling. Uh, the, the shelling is causing the deaths. Uh, the minimum casualties that we see 
in Ukraine are 150,000 killed and probably 500,000 wounded. Some of those wounded may go back into battle, but these are the horrific statistics. And these death rates are occurring because of the intensity of the Russian shelling. Let's just have a look at this uh, clip. Um, it, it's important to watch it. Uh, it's not in, unpleasant in, it, in its own right. There's nothing which is graphic, but it just shows what is actually happening on the front. So a very short clip, but of course the reality is that men are enduring shelling for hours, days, weeks, months at a time. Uh, that is not only causing the death and, and injuries, but it's also uh, certain to be ca causing mental injury to these men at the front. But of course, BBC Western media does not want to admit that poorly trained Ukrainian troops are being slaughtered as a result of Western support and help. Now, Brian's just shown a little bit of video with what appeared to be uh, forced conscription going on uh, and one ethnic group within Ukraine that's claiming that they're being disproportionately targeted for this uh, is uh, Hungarians, people that hold uh, joint uh, Ukrainian-Hungarian uh, passports uh, and uh, ethnic Hungarians in, uh, in Ukraine. So let's bring this on screen. Uh, do a quick translate, translation of it. Uh, the Transcarpathian Brigade may suffer huge losses. It's probably a poor translation. Alex can correct it maybe. Uh, but uh, let's see what it says. Most Subcarpathian Hungarians uh, can serve in the 128th uh, Mountain Hunting Brigade. Uh, and it is precisely this unit that is deployed in the bloodiest battles. Their exact losses are not known, but a lot of people probably died in the Solidar meat grinder. Interesting uh, turn of phrase there. Uh, soldiers turn, returning home from the front also reported to our newspaper about real hell on earth. According to our information, the Transcarpathian morgues are also full and they are deliberately slowing down the release of victims. So what is being claimed here is that uh, huge numbers of ethnic Hungarians dying in Ukraine, uh, that the bodies are being taken to morgues where they're sitting. Uh, the morgues are full. They're not uh, releasing the names uh, in order to try to drip feed them out and imply that, you know, suggest that there are fewer people uh, being killed than there are. Now, Victor Orban has, uh, has commented on this. Uh, he's uh, uh, concerned about this targeting of Hungarians and so on. Uh, but uh, let's look at a couple of other uh, things that are going on within Ukraine at the moment. So uh, Ukraine punishes Transcarpathian Hungarians again, according to Hungary Today. Uh, a new regulation is making everyday, everyday life more difficult for, for Hungarians in Transcarpathia. Hungarians with dual Ukrainian-Hungarian citizenship are no longer allowed to cross the Ukrainian border with a Hungarian passport. So they're allowed to come into the country with a Hungarian passport, but they're not, they, they're not allowed to leave on the, the same Hungarian passport. They've got to have Ukrainian uh, paperwork, which some of them don't have, it seems. Uh, here's another one from the same source, Ukraine's new minority law codifies injustice. Uh, the new law, they're quoting here, the new law interprets minority rights as the rights of persons belonging to minorities only, exercisable individually, depriving them, brackets their communities and organizations, of the possibility to exercise 
their political education and linguistic rights and thus influencing their own destiny. Um, and then finally, we've got this report here uh, saying that in a joint statement, the Subcarpathian Hungarian Cultural Association and the Ukrainian Hungarian Democratic Association criticized this new law on the national communities of Ukraine. The law not only strengthens the legal restrictions previously codified in the Education and Language Act, but introduces new ones. Uh, and, they quote, and the quote here is, it does not guarantee the preservation of compact nationality settlement areas, nor the use of nationality symbols. Um, so Alex, uh, in some cases, uh, they are the voices representing uh, Ukrainian, Hungarian, or Hungarian, uh, uh, Hungarians in Ukraine are even going as far as suggesting that there's ethnic cleansing going on. I, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this or any awareness. It doesn't actually surprise me that the Hungarians, the ethnic Hungarians are making that claim, uh, all the people back in their mother country in, in Hungary. Uh, they're not blameless themselves, the Magyars, the, the Hungarians in expansionism and uh, their drive for greater Hungary. But as with Slovakia, they also they do have justified claims that, that both of those Slavic nations have treated their citizens as subhumans for some while. In both world wars, the Hungarians often complained that they were being disproportionately uh, put in the in the hardest fighting, for example, the occupation of Voronezh in southern Russia in the Second World War. I've been through that Transcarpathian area that's largely Hungarian, and even before the 2014 coup, there was a lot of tension in the air uh, as they felt they weren't able to speak their language or teach their children their language or hold services in their language without molestation. It got a lot worse after the 2014 coup. Colonel Jack Bow, in an article that's still on the homepage of our website, goes into detail on that. The um, High Commissioner on National Minorities at the OSCE has long made this point with specific reference to the Hungarians. Uh, they are the most, uh, uh, we say, eloquent of the national minorities. They've got a, a big daddy state backing them. But I'm afraid Orban, uh, so by that token, we probably know more about what's happening to them than we do about other ethnic minorities like the Romanians and the Ruthenians. But Orban is increasingly isolated. Uh, his his political affiliates and certainly the oppositionists and conservatives who used to be in his coalition have fallen away now and are start, starting to give interviews to Western and Ukrainian media saying Orban must ch uh, change his mind and, and come down hard against the Russians in this war. So, But I am told that Hungary is about to drop its uh, objection to the seventh tranche of EU uh, military aid, which is going to be uh, coming up in the Foreign Affairs Committee, if memory serves, of the Council of the EU. So you know you can't rely on uh, Hungary to to uh, or to have the uh, to have the strength and the, and unity to keep following through on this. But I'm afraid it doesn't surprise me. Uh, and there there is quite a lot of potential for Hungarians to be disappeared and to to make up the ranks of the uh, of the sacrificial lambs. Certainly, that there's this historical precedent for that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move on to Macron then. Yes, a French viewer has spotted this, and so we'll bring that email up on screen. Macron has just nationalised SNPE, uh, which is the Explosives and Propellants Conglomerate. It used to belong to a French state-owned but uh, state-owned company called GIAT, which was itself a shareholder of Nexter, a Franco-German affair. The French viewer says that I believe this nationalisation is a way of putting the state on the hook for forthcoming huge debts, which will be racked up while France massively provides Ukraine with ammunition, including, as we see, long-range ammunition now. Of, of course, says the alert French viewer, Ukraine won't pay, and this can't be accepted on the balance sheets of the Franco-German public-private partnership, Nexter, which is made up of GIAT and the German uh, partner, Krauss-Maffei. That would put Nexter in jeopardy, and of course, we can't have the uh, Franco-German 
manufacturing base uh, jeopardized. So Urenco News reports in French on this. That will be on the, the show notes for those who read French. Uh, the, 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 the puff piece says that Urenco is reorganizing to, to boost its growth. But the graphic is what the uh, viewer drew our attention to. So before organization, uh, reorganization, the French um, state shareholder directly owned GIAT and that went all the way down to Urenco and then it split out. Uh, but now GIAT's out of the way. The, the French state goes down to this explosives and propellants manufacturer. And below that is Urenco, including in Belgium, Sweden and other European bases. So uh, this is uh, the French taxpayer directly now on the hook uh, for what's going on there. Uh, a significant reorg, perhaps. Uh, we also have a rather laughable piece from the Council on Foreign Relations House Journal Foreign Affairs, which I know is doing the rounds among European policymakers uh, to prove that, that the sanctions on Russia are supposedly wor working. Just to draw attention to these three utterly hypocritical points that are made as to why the Russian economy is supposedly being defeated by these measures. Because inflation in Russia is actually underestimated, and this is not true of the, the EU and the US and the UK. The ruble is artificially propped up by state policy, as if this didn't apply to the dollar, sterling and the euro, and dissidents are intimidated by long jail terms. That couldn't possibly apply to the West, could it? Uh, of course not. Of course not. But uh, what about Poland and oil? Yes, uh, it's being put about that this may be a Russian attempt to uh, do a tit for tat for what happened recently with the Nord Stream blow up. So a blogger uh, who has uh, done a lot of good work in the past, Sam Faddis, who, run, who runs his blog called And Magazine on Substack, has picked up on what CBS and others have reported. The CBS News link is in this piece, so it'll be in the show notes too. He's asking who wants to blow up Poland's largest oil terminal. The uh, uh, breathing equipment um, and diving equipment you see on screen is what the Polish Coast Guard recovered from three men in a boat in a cold, dark, stormy night in the Baltic. Uh, when apprehended, they were suffering difficulty, as I say, in the storm. They said, sirs, we are three Spanish gentlemen diving for amber in a pitch dark winter night uh, in a storm. That doesn't really go down very credibly, does it? So Sam uh, reports this and he says that expensive diving equipment was recovered just off the coast of Gdansk. Uh, only one had ID. Uh, one of them gave a, a Spanish phone number that didn't have the right number of digits, a classic tell that my old profession intelligence uses to see that people aren't of the nationality uh, that they claim to be. Uh, so thin cover. And this was right off NAFTA port, uh, which is shortly going to be importing American liquid natural gas in a nice, uh, uh, brightly glowing, gas-filled, uh, attractive target if the Russians do want to get their own back. So I do hope they don't, but uh, don't say you weren't warned. Yeah. I just come in here, Alex, with a smile on my face and say, I wonder whether this was a staged operation for the uh, company producing the Aqua Safe. Was, was that the title, the so-called Harbour Defence System? And I say that because, of course, it's becoming ever more obvious that many weapons manufacturers and, and supporting uh, equipment manufacturers for the military and military operation um, are overjoyed that they can use uh, the fighting in Ukraine as a, a live trial area for their equipment. So uh, if you're into uh, protecting harbours, uh, what better than to have a little incident to get people worried about the potential of an underwater attack? Um, and Alex, just uh, one final uh, international story then from South Africa uh, before we move back on to medical issues. 
at a time when we are very concerned about digital uh, central bank digital currency and new currency zones emerging. The latest announced this week is uh, Brazil and Argentina in talks to merge their currencies. Uh, you can go local. You can go under the super state as well. So Volkstart here is uh, tweeting from the, the, the headquarters, as it were, of the Africana practical independence movement, the town of Orania. Uh, they have an aura. Uh, its sign is a Greek or, or, or a Cyrillic letter phi. It's their currency. Uh, here's some interesting measures that make it a little foolproof uh, in the coming era. It's a coupon for local use only. It's secure. There's no point in robbing it. Uh, Rands, South Africa's national currency, which may soon become Digirands as anywhere else, they earn interest, but auras, while, uh, while auras circulate, and it's a symbol of that local community's independence with their own cultural images. Uh, the Germans are doing this left, right, and center and have been for 20 years, and I think it's about time that we started following suit in the pampered and mollycoddled West. Okay, thank you for that. Now, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, or you could uh, pick something up at the UK Column shop. But as usual, please do share what you see on the various platforms. Uh, and Alex, uh, one announcement here. Uh, simply to draw attention to this, if you're in or near Dublin uh, at Leinster House uh, on the Kildare Street side, they're going to have uh, a rally, say no to gender ideology and pornography in schools on Thursday the 26th uh, from 12 till 2. And they're calling that hold the line to protect childhood. OK, thank you for that. Uh, Debbie. Mike, thank you. Um, right. So. What I want to do, just give you a quick sprinkling of a few NHS stories that I've seen, because there are so many of them, you can't catch up. So I've just done a slide with a few of the ones that I think people might like to be aware of. So you can see there's one, um, we're going for cervical screening now, more test, 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 and we'll come on to tests in a minute, but test, test, test. We've got the NHS turning to maggots, um, antibiotic resistance rises. We've been talking about that for a long time. Worryingly, the Telegraph recently, a couple of days, brought out this story. Assisted suicide could be seen as an opportunity for cost saving by the NHS. So we've already seen it um, rolling out in Canada. We've seen sarcopods maybe legislated in Scotland. And then down at the bottom there, um, which dovetails quite nicely, actually, with your earlier segment, Mike, um, we seem to be managing heart failure now at home. And considering we've got an awful lot of people with heart failure as a result of the injection, um, it, it's not looking it's not looking good. So those were just a few of the NHS stories. But my main segment today, I've I've actually taken a leaf out of the government's book. So I've de I've designed a three letter a three word phrase for you just to trigger you on this segment. And so my three word phrase is device diagnose die. Okay, and I know that doesn't sound very good, but, you know, we're not children and, and our audience is a very intelligent audience who have got a lot of common sense. And I'm going to ask everybody now, who do you believe? Do you believe yourself or do you believe digital health and digital apps and everything else that goes with it? So it's, it's nice that it's dovetailed in with Alex's piece on digitalization as well, because I'm going to be focusing on digital health. So if we take ourselves back to uh, Sajid Javid, um, he had the plan for digital health and social care. And just very quickly, you can freeze the screen and read it. But 40 million people have now got an NHS login. 40 million. That's over half of the population. The NHS app is now going to be the front door 
of the National Health Service. By 2025, we're going to be digitising health and social care records, and we're going to have a digitally supported diagnosis. So this digital healthcare is really coming in full steam ahead. But the NHS are telling you to look after yourself. Um, we keep hearing about personalised care. What is personalised care? So personalised care really is, you can see down on the um, bottom left of the screen, you can see one of them is patient activation, supported self-management. So pharmacists, by the way, personalised care, that means genomic testing and personal health budgets included there. So, you know, we're looking at a time where we're all going to get a budget and be told that we've only got this amount of money that will access us any NHS care. And we're going to have uh, self-referrals. So we're going to be able to self-refer to consultants. But what does that actually take us to? And who are we told to go and see when we're feeling sick? So who do you go to? Um, I personally don't go to either of the people on the screen here. One is Google because more and more people are hitting Google because they can't see a GP. So they put their symptoms into Google and Google tells them what's wrong with them. Or they go to the NHS for screening and earlier diagnosis. But my big thing with that is if you're going for screening and earlier diagnosis, again, we're talking about well people. These people are, are okay. So what is the digital health market all about? Because honestly, it's booming. It really is booming. And so some of the wearables that you'll know, you'll have heard about Fitbits, Apple Watches, and all the other devices, you know, your smartphone, your apps on your smartphone. So this is a really, really, really big business, medical devices. And the NHS app is going to be the, the the passport, the door forward, if you like, with regards to the NHS. So if we look at the NHS app, um, we can see that it's going to have your COVID pass on it, um, you know, your vaccine status, you'll be able to get your own information. So you won't need to phone a doctor, we know GPs are going, but you won't need to phone anybody to get your results because you'll simply log into your app and you'll be able to get to get your results. Oh, Fantastic. But what else does the NHS app unlock you into? Because there's plenty of other things. And with 40 million people having a login, you know, we've got a lot of people accessing this app. So on the app, you'll see a load of well-being apps as well as digital apps. So there's just a few of them just to give you an idea. Zero Suicide Alliance, Headspace, Worklife Central. So those are the kinds of well-being apps that you're seeing with regards to the NHS app. But in the main market, you know, uh, your kids want the latest uh, gadgets and gizmos. What can you get on the open market? Well, you can you can do everything now. You can monitor your own blood pressure. You can find out what your heart's doing. You can pretty much find out your own health. So when they talk about personalized health and looking after yourself, what they're really saying is rely on all of these apps rely on all of these devices. And let's not forget that devices are regulated by the MHRA. And these devices, in my opinion, are aimed or almost calibrated to make you think you're sick because people are believing what Google says. People are believing what these apps are saying and what their devices are saying. And they're not even looking in the mirror. 
And, you know, if you're walking and talking and you're you're drinking and you're eating and you're feeling okay and you wouldn't normally have a, a bowel test or you wouldn't normally have a, a PCR test, then there's no need to have one. Don't have one. The aim is to make you sick or to make you think you're sick. So who oversees all of these apps that we're all meant to believe? And I was quite shocked to find that, I mean, I knew about the MHRA because they've got new regulatory device um, standards in, in, in action now, but we've also got the Care Quality Commission, and that of course was mentioned earlier by Headley, um, and we've got ORCA as well. So who are ORCA? They're the organisation for the review of care and health apps. So they're, they kind of are responsible for the distribution of these apps. So let's just have a look and see at who Orca are. I think we might have a, a short video. I don't know if we can jump to that video of Orca and you can see who they are. Orca stands for the Organisation for the Review of Care and Health Applications. But our mission isn't to review apps, it's actually to distribute great, high quality health apps to the people who need them the most. Orca works with national health bodies across the world. From New Zealand to Norway, we are establishing health app accreditation schemes. Orca's service is absolutely critical to the uptake of great digital health solutions. Currently we have access to 365,000 health apps and every day 5 million people will download one of those health apps. Only 15% of that 365,000 are high quality enough to warrant us being able to use them. So of that 5 million it gives you an idea of how many unsafe, unregulated products are being downloaded. And what we are really working towards is trying to close the opportunity gap by making sure that only the high quality apps can be found and used. Orca are now working with 25% of the NHS and care organisations in England. That covers almost 30 million citizens. So we create locally targeted and locally branded app libraries that get promoted to different communities. And we also then work with the trusted healthcare professionals who use that app library to search for and prescribe by a text message the best app for their patients. Debbie, uh, so I've they, got a question. Sorry, uh, yes, go on, Mike. Yeah, how, if they don't review the apps, because the first thing she said there was we don't review the apps, then how do they, how do they know that an app is high quality? What she, what she seemed to be saying there was, uh, actually, it's only government approved apps which are getting uh, listed here. Yeah, ex exactly. Exactly, Mike. And, and you know, we're believing these apps. We're told that these apps um, are accurate. So, yeah, completely. But you know well, what? I looked at who? Sorry, go on. Well, <laughs> I know well, it's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> sorry, Debbie, I had to inject. I think all your worries are actually baseless. This is a company that we can trust. Uh, <laughs> I just happened to notice while the video was playing that uh, one of their key investors is Terry Leahy um, and his yeah. experience is 27 years and one month in Tesco. Oh, I've preempted you, yes. Debbie, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I, I was the same. I went to look at who was on Orca and I could see this pair, this this duo. So Terry Leahy, advisory board and Bill Curry. So then I thought I'd go and have a look at this partnership and who are they? 
and they're double trouble basically they're both involved in the William Curry investments and as you've rightly said Brian Sir Terry was the CEO of Tesco and he was involved in transforming Britain and Bill Curry who was the founder of this William Curry group he's been ASOS Cafe Nero Hut Group you name it so yeah um you were you were absolutely on point there. These are the people that run Orca and these are the people that we need to trust along with the MHRA, NICE, the CQC. I mean, sounds great, doesn't it? So, yeah, Orca. So Orca. Um, all I'm saying really is don't trust the apps, you know, look in the mirror. If you don't need a test, if you feel okay, trust yourself. Don't trust these apps because that's what personalized care is all about. Uh, okay, well, let's uh, let's move on to an email uh, from the Department uh, for Health and Social Care. Yeah, look, I just wanted to bring this back to people's memories because I think it's really relevant. I wrote this FOI back in December 21 because I was worried about what do we do if we don't, you know, we've opted out of sharing data. We've opted out of being an organ donor. Now I want to opt out of being scooped up on the street and taken to the NHS. So what do I do to opt out of the NHS? And uh, Sajid Javid's office wrote back and basically said there was no way to leave the NHS. But, and this is where, please freeze the screen and, and have a read, because they're saying that all adults are presumed to have sufficient capacity to decide on their own medical treatment. Now, that's fine until they deem you as not having capacity. And that was the link the hyperlink there. Now, this this really concerns me because, you know, we've all got capacity, right? But what is their definition of not having capacity? And when you see what the definition is, I think there are a number of times that we could all say that our capacity could be questioned. Um, they, they say that assessing capacity, if you're schizophrenia, you're maybe not, don't have capacity. Bipolar, otherwise known as manic depression, uh, probably don't have um, capacity. If you've got a learning disability, you don't have capacity. If you've got brain damage, you don't have capacity. If you're acute, if you're confused, if you're not terribly aware, if you're even drunk, you don't have capacity. So they can deem you as not having capacity for pretty much anything and take over your care, deeming their they're, they are working in your best interest. So I just wanted to highlight that. But we are speaking to legal teams about how we get around this if we don't want to go to the NHS. So that's a project um, still ongoing. OK, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Well, we're going to end today's news by ending on the BBC. Uh, but surprisingly, I have to bring in Boris Johnson again because this story has been unfolding over the last few days and I think is extremely interesting. Here's The Express. Boris Johnson denies BBC chairman helped arrange an 800,000 loan for a hard-up uh, prime minister. Um, now, when you read these articles, um, there's quite a bit of detail about how much Boris jo um, has, Johnson has been earning at any particular time. And he's quoted as saying it's very difficult for him to live on uh, about £142,000 a year because he's got a lot of family commitments. And, you know, you can understand this puts him under quite a bit of pressure. Um, and he's described the BBC um, <laughs> allegations about what's going on as being nonsense. 
Now remember that this is the BBC chairman Richard Sharp that's being named in these articles. So we got we got some interesting things happening. So here's the BBC News report. Uh, apparently Boris was offered an eight hundred thousand um, loan to top up his income. And uh, the allegation is that BBC's chairman Richard Sharp was involved in arranging it. And this came out in a report uh, in an article by the Sunday Times. So Mr. Sharp denies being involved in any loan. Well, Mr. Johnson says his final in financial interests have been properly declared. But why would he need a loan this big in the first place? Well, if you're Boris Johnson, you know, living on £140,000 a year is, is tricky. And I, I think that's only fair. So here's the Times, the BBC chairman, the prime minister and the 800,000 loan guaranteed. The BBC chairman, according to the Times, helped to arrange a guarantee on a loan of up to 800,000 for Boris Johnson weeks before the then prime minister recommended him for the role. Oh, uh, Richard Sharp was involved in talks about financing Johnson's Downing Street lifestyle in November and December 2020. And then it goes on to say Sharp 66, a former banker at, but then you get hit by the Times paywall. But uh, I went to a different source. Uh, so here we are. Who is uh, the BBC chairman? The former banker who is in his 60s, worked for more than 30 years in the financial sector, including a 23 year stint at investment giant Goldman Sachs, where he was reportedly mentored by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Before this, he worked in both commercial and investment banking for JP Morgan. It's so incestuous, isn't it? It's incestuous, but of course, those huge banking groups are rubbing their hands with glee at the moment uh, because they can make profit out of uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, but this shows how dirty it is. And if Boris Johnson is a man having to take on huge uh, loans, uh, he's struggling with his finance. Um, is that how his strings are being pulled? in Ukraine, possibly. Mm. But let's have a look at how uh, Britain's former Prime Minister defends himself. Let's have a look at this clip. Would you yeah, welcome an inquiry is, this, into look, that? This is a load of complete nonsense, absolute nonsense. Let me just, let me just tell you, Richard Sharp is a good and a wise man, uh, but he knows absolutely nothing about my personal finances. I can tell you that for 100% for ding-dang sure. This is just another example of the BBC disappearing up its own fundament, and that I propose is... So it's just a coincidence that this appointment was arranged? Uh, well, there we are. Would you trust Boris Johnson? I certainly wouldn't. And uh, we wait to see how this interesting little snake's wedding of uh, interaction develops. But uh, just before we leave the BBC completely on this issue, at least, um, let's just jump back to a BBC report, which has uh, come out about the two Britons, Chris Parry and Andrew Bagshaw, um, killed in Solidar rescue attempts. Now, remember that although the BBC never reports it properly, the fighting in Solidar has been vicious. Um, it's now emerged that these two men were killed. I just wanted to bring on screen that reports from Russian sources, which I have seen, indicate these two men were found in a fighting trench at the front in Solidar. And so, I would like to know what the real truth is about their work and death. And I'm not saying the Russian reports were correct. It was just that pictures were circulated on social media of two bodies in a fighting trench. And this is where apparently uh, identity details were found. 
um, but what is the true story about what they were doing? Um, uh, the truth is what we need, I feel. But I just wanted to highlight that the BBC couldn't resist using this very sad and emotional story as an opportunity to mislead the public. Um, so if you look at the story, you'll find um, that they use a map back from the 17th of January, and this allows the BBC to fool the British public into thinking that Solidar is still in Ukrainian hands. So uh, the BBC is not going to tell the truth if it possibly can. And I think that just takes us on to uh, a few final comments from, uh, from Alex. Yes. It just gets better and better, gentlemen, because our and finalists are being supplied by our viewers these days. So I would say go ye and do likewise. Uh, what does our viewer have to say? I recently bought a time machine and an internet truth filter from an online retail giant. I was a bit sceptical at first, as it wasn't that expensive, a bit like Debbie's devices, but the feedback for the seller was good, so I thought I'd give it a whirl. I plugged both the time machine and the truth filter into my personal computer, as they came with handy USB ports. I thought that I would try it out on a website which had some need of elucidation, so I picked the BBC. Look what happened. Here we are, BBC News, and now this is a whole genre going back 20 years, uh, uh, skits on the BBC News website. Uh, but this is a, a UK column viewers version. So we have Matt Hancock referred to courts for PPE tax fraud and illegal investments. Uh, we have the NHS admitting that wearing a mask is as effective as some of the treatments for COVID. We have scary picture of woman in mask walking through dry ice. We have Andrew Bridgen pleased with his nomination for Prime Minister. We have women uh, calling Boris Johnson an unrepeatable. We have the inventor of the PCR test in the court overuse. And I'll read the sub headline for this one as well. I see Debbie's chuckling in the background. You can freeze to read all of the subheaders, but there's this one I'll read out. Uh, PTR test inventor, Dr. Eldritch, that's not the real PCR test inventor, I have to hasten to add, claims that his test was actually designed for removing big tricky bogeys and had nothing at all to do with the virus. And finally, what is known about the new COVID variant, YYURYYUBICURYY4ME? Pretty good stuff. And then the viewer uh, finishes with this. Feel free to share this on UK Column News as some folk in the chat box didn't believe that this would work. But please don't tell my wife as she thinks I've spent the money on a new coffee machine. Thanks for the great work you are all doing and further nice compliments, including somebody who managed to listen carefully enough to hear what we were saying in the Motherwell recording. So not all of the flack we got uh, was please improve the audio. But what's uh, the Motherwell event that's just been happened has been recorded in much better audio. So when that goes up, you're in for a pleasant surprise as well. Alex, thank you for that. And we'll end on a furry friend uh, that I met, who I met in, in uh, Scotland over the weekend. Uh, I turned around to see these eyes looking at me. And uh, clearly the thought process was, are you still watching BBC News? Because if so, I'm watching you. So we'll see whether one of our viewers at least can identify who that lovely doggy is. But, uh, well, we need a little bit of uplift, don't we, after the quality of the news uh, at the moment. Yeah, back in a couple of minutes for some extra. OK, thank you, Alex. Thank you, Debbie. We'll see you shortly. Bye bye.